Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. Thank you for listening to the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform, as well as share it with your colleagues. If you're looking for more content, check out or follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn and Facebook for some different types of content and check out robsreliability.com as well. If you're looking for a short daily audio tip, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Tip of the Day on your favorite podcast platform. As well, it's also available on Amazon Alexa as a flash briefing. So check that out. Finally, if there are any topics, guests you'd like to hear from, questions you want answered, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, just send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Now let's get rolling. Hey guys, I'm here with Michelle Ledette Henley. Michelle, how are you? I'm doing good, Rob. How are you doing? Great. No, thanks for joining us this week. I'm excited to talk to you. I appreciate the opportunity. Awesome. And so for people who don't know who Michelle is, Michelle, you're the organizational learning consultant at the manufacturing game. And I believe it's your parents that founded the manufacturing game. That's correct. Yeah. And, and so just so everyone knows, I like, I've, I'm familiar with the manufacturing game. We, ha- we hosted it at Tech one year, but do you want to give people an idea of what the manufacturing game is and kind of what the concept is behind it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, The manufacturing game is a simulation that we use with organizations that are trying to improve their reliability. It basically gives them a chance to take their reliability initiatives for a test drive, just like a a pilot uses a flight simulator, or I was at a uh, technical college recently and they had a forklift simulator. It gives people a chance to practice some new skills in a low-risk environment and get a chance to kind of make some adjustments and see how it works. So with the manufacturing game, what they're practicing are actually organizational skills rather than technical skills. And so that's why we've kept it a board game. It is actually you know, a board game with poker chips and fake money and all that. It's not a computer game uh, because we think it's really important if you're dealing with organizational skills that you work with people. And so it's important to be sort of four feet away from somebody and work together to come up with your common goals and to uh, figure out how you're going to get there together. So that's what we we do at the game. At the end of the workshop, we also launch what we call action teams. So we think it's really important to take whatever learnings you get from the simulation and take them out into the field. So this gives companies kind of a a quantifiable improvement they can look at in terms of the teams, but they also get this level of of buy-in. When people have a deeper understanding of kind of the big picture, they're more likely to go along with the process. And what does an action team do? An action team is a small cross-functional group. They pick a defect that they want to get rid of, fairly small in size, so something that uh, won't take more than about 90 days, won't cost more than about $5,000, and the team itself goes out and makes that defect go away. So they don't get to hand it off or or give a recommendation to someone else. It's up to them to uh, take the action. Awesome. No, and and I love the measurable improvement. That's something that we all need to do more more of. Yeah, definitely. 
And so that kind of that kind of bridges the gap with what we were having you on to talk about today. So last week you were at the SMRP and you delivered a talk called Reliability Ball Caps and Barbecues. What really motivates? And and kind of as far as I know, the concept of the talk is really about is is kind of what you touched on, right? Is like we work with people. And as reliability people, you know, we get excited. Like I, I love machine learning. I love artificial intelligence. I love kind of the nuts and bolts of reliability. But at the end of the day, implementation matters and kind of the people side matter. So do you want to just give us an intro to to kind of your, your talk and then we'll dive right in? Yeah, yeah, so exactly what you were talking about is, is what got me motivated. I've seen a lot of reliability efforts over the years and, and ones that are very well designed. And for one reason or another, they, they really don't have the impact that was intended. And so that drives people, including me, to look for, you know, why why didn't it work? And a lot of times the answer is, is implementation and specifically a lack of buy-in by the people in the field who would need to change their behavior to make this work. So this kind of got me interested in this question of, um, when it comes to motivation, what really works? We try a lot of things, uh, some more effective than others. And I kind of had my personal opinion about it based on my experiences, but I really didn't have any kind of details about, well, why would that be true? I just had sort of, here's what's happened to me and, and what I see works and doesn't. So I dug into the research and there's a tremendous amount of research out there about motivation. And so what I found is some of it kind of validated my experiences. Um, more importantly, it provided an explanation as to why that would be true. Um, but there were a couple of surprises as well that, that kind of made me rethink about uh, my approach to motivation. But the short answer in terms of, of what really works in terms of motivation is that the most effective, most sustainable motivation is when the motivation comes from the work itself or the people who are doing that work on a regular basis rather than outside, like the ball caps and the barbecues. Yeah, and I, I think that we've seen that, uh, like most of us have gone to a workplace barbecue or you know gotten this kickoff initiative. And so why doesn't that technique really work? So the, the problem comes in in terms of, more in terms of sustainability than, than anything else. So it'll work. Um, when you think about motivation, one of the things that, that's important to consider is that it's not really a personal uh, personality characteristic like we sometimes think of it. I can't say Michelle's a motivated person, but Rob is, is not. Uh, motivation is always connected to action. And so when you think about motivation, you need to think about motivated to do what? And so when we think of that in context of the ball caps and the barbecues, what is it that we're trying to to, to get people to do, to, to seek uh, free clothing and free food, or do we want them to change their, their work habits? Um, and, and again, there's not really a problem with, with doing the ball caps and the barbecues uh, as, as a way to bring attention to the initiative or to recognize a job well done. The problem comes in when our focus shifts. And I think most of us have seen that where it's about, it becomes about getting the reward, not about doing the work. I definitely have seen this with safety initiatives where people consider not reporting near misses or accidents because they won't get their safety bonus if they do that. So um, we want to make sure that that as we're trying to motivate people, we're not encouraging them to just seek rewards, but we're encouraging them to change their behavior because over the long haul, that will be better not only for the company, but for them. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. I've definitely seen on numerous occasions for not reporting safety incidents 
in terms of, you know, to hit that 1 million man hours or whatever the, the safety initiative is. Exactly. And, and that was never the intent of putting together that program. The intent was to motivate people to be safer, um, but people's focus shifted from the activity to the reward. And so you mentioned that you had some initial thoughts about motivation. Can you break down what those are? Yeah, so it, it uh, kind of fell along the lines of, of the, the carrot and stick stuff just never seemed to work or never seemed to work long term. So, you know, kind of trying to, to bribe people into compliance or threaten them into compliance seemed to have a, a good short term impact, but really didn't work in, in terms of sustainability. And that was the, the research really backed that up. And then you, you mentioned also that you found some surprising things in the research. What were those? The biggest surprise was the harm that some of those external motivations can actually do. So a little bit like we talked about with the safety initiative, that you know not only does it um, is it not as effective in terms of sustainability, but it actually can can deteriorate some of the the internal motivations, the better motivations. So, you know, trying to be safe, obviously the reason, the best reason to do that is because you want to, you want to go home from work the same way you showed up every day. But once we start putting those rewards in there, it, it causes a shift in people and they lose sight of the fact that safety in and of itself is, is important and is very motivational. Um, but we start looking at, at those rewards instead. And so you've made kind of a, a distinction there between, you know, external motivations and internal motivations. How do we, like, how do we get people to be internally motivated? So when you think about internal motivation and you look at the uh, the research, a lot of times they divide they divide those internal motivations into three broad categories. I, I call them the three P's just to help me remember them. So it's play, purpose, and potential. So play is when the work itself is enjoyable. Purpose is when the immediate result has some sort of a mean, some sort of meaning to the person who's doing the work. And then potential is when the work enhances the future potential of the person doing the work. And so if you start thinking about how do we, how do we tap into those, um, it means that we need to think not about sort of external rewards and things like that, but we need to think about the work itself. How do we change the work so that it's more enjoyable, has more meaning to people, and and helps them to achieve their longer-term goals? Now, wouldn't those, like, obviously those motivations the uh, from the internal side, like they would be different between, for example, you and me. So how do we, like, how do we capitalize on, like, like, you know, assuming we have a shop floor of 50, 100 people, whatever, how do we kind of motivate each person separately? Yeah, that's the real challenge because, again, motivation is, is very personal, something that I may find motivational, um, you may find very tedious. And so it is, a, and I think that's part of the reason that we, we just go with the ball caps and barbecues because that's an easy answer and it's a blanket answer. Um, the the key is is getting to know people and getting to know what it is that that they enjoy. There's some sort of broad things that you can do in terms of of these activities. So in in terms of play, where people are enjoying the work and and curious, giving people a chance to participate to a greater degree gives them a chance to kind of choose. Hey, where does this where does this fit for me? Um, 
purpose to me is one of the the easier ones. And and this a lot of times just involves closing the loop, letting people see that what they're doing is making a difference. Uh, If you think about, say, a vibration analysis program, if you're asking operators to go out and take vibration readings, um, it's something they haven't done before, and now it's adding to their workload. If you never close the loop and give them feedback in terms of here's how that helped us, then it just feels like extra work. But if you close that loop, and, and let them understand that what they personally did made a difference, most people that, that has a pretty significant impact on. And then with potential, looking for opportunities where it, at least putting the opportunities out there for people to get additional training that, that they might find helpful with their career or additional certifications um, are some sort of good generic ways to do it. But you're, you're absolutely right. It, it is personal when it comes to that internal motivation. Yeah, I, I think that's probably the toughest thing. I really like the um, that tip about purpose. I've, I mean, we've definitely talked about it before on the podcast, at least, you know, in in a couple, a uh, couple different times about you know really going back to the people who do the work and kind of either telling them, you know, hey, we use that data that you put into our CMMS to to make this judgment. Or we, you know, we took this oil sample and we wanted to talk to you about it because, you know, whatever. It's definitely something that I like as a, as a concept, and and it really it works. Uh, one thing that you you know you mentioned was that um, using extrinsic uh, motivating tools can destroy intrinsic motivation. How does that work? Yeah. So the. The problem comes, like I mentioned, when it's not necessarily the, the reward itself, but it's, it's the change in focus. And so in the, uh, in the literature, this phenomenon is referred to as the over-justification effect, where the participant connects the reward to their participation and forgets that they enjoy doing this for other reasons, that extrinsic uh, reward kind of takes over. And I think the easiest way to explain this is is to talk about a couple of examples. So the first one is if you think about, so non-work related here, you uh, meet up with a friend and go to a movie, really interesting movie, you have a good time, you go to dinner afterwards, have a a great conversation over dinner, very interesting. And then you you go down the street to the gelato shop afterwards and and continue your your wonderful evening. And so as it wraps up, you're thinking to yourself, man, this was fantastic. I really had a good time. And then your friend says, wow, this was fantastic. I really had a good time. They reach in their pocket, they pull out a $100 bill and they hand it to you. So think about how your feelings change from, hey, this was an enjoyable activity in and of itself to this is something I did to earn a hundred bucks. And so that really kind of shifts the focus away from something that was enjoyable to now, okay, well, if they ask me to do this again, do I negotiate price? And, you know, how does this work? Another example that that I experienced with 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 youth sports and specifically for me, it was youth baseball. I have a stepson who uh, played youth baseball, very good baseball player. And, and he and his friends really loved the game. They would play baseball kind of anytime, anywhere, whether they had bats and balls or not, they would find some way to make it happen. And once they got into organized sports and kind of got into the travel sports, which was a little bit more serious, and they got coaches that suddenly were, were worried about winning the weekend tournament and getting the trophy. And, and they had parents that were saying, if you hit a home run, I'll buy you a new bat. And they had other parents who were screaming maniacs if anything went, went wrong. We actually had 
someone get arrested <laughs> during one of these baseball <laughs> games because they got so involved in it. And so you could really see with these kids, they had this natural love of the game, but as the external rewards, the trophies and the bats or the the punishments of you know getting yelled at if they missed an easy pop fly, um, you could really see some of the joy and the activity drain out of the kids because the focus shift shifted. It was no longer about having fun and playing baseball with your buddies. It became about winning awards and and not making mistakes and things like that. So, you know, when we think about from a work environment, when we're trying to get people to work harder, if we do it by bribing them with rewards or scaring them with threats, that only works as long as we continue to either bribe them or, or threaten them. Um, they, they lose sight of sort of the activity itself. That said, as I started looking into it, I thought, you know, we, we use these extrinsic rewards all the time. Is there a better way to do it? And the, the good news is there is a way to use extrinsic rewards without triggering this over justification effect. And that's when the rewards are unexpected and they come when a task is already completed. Uh, another way that, that it's referred to is now that type rewards. So if you have, say, a plant manager that says, hey, now that we've achieved a 25% increase in our uptime metric, let's have a barbecue and celebrate. So it's unexpected, comes after the work is done, compared to what we traditionally do, which is if-then type of rewards. If we increase our uptime by 25%, then we'll host a barbecue. And it, it's a subtle distinction, but a really important one. The first one keeps the focus on the work, even though you're still doing something extrinsically to, to kind of celebrate a job well done, whereas the other one shifts the focus to this reward that we can get. Um, if you just change your behavior, then you'll get this reward. So that that was a really interesting insight to me is it, it doesn't mean the ball caps and barbecues have to go away. We just need to, to do them differently in order to keep the focus on the work. That's a really interesting point. I, I think that there's also, you know, it's kind of tough when we're talking about uh, work because like the reason why we work is to get paid. So it seems like it's a tough kind of interaction where we're trying to turn work into play or purpose driven. Yeah. yeah and that, that really is, is an important point. So you say we work, we work to get paid, which is absolutely true. Um, but there's a reason we chose the particular type of work that we do. And so that's, uh, you know, going beyond, yeah, we need to get a paycheck, but, but there's, um, there's more to it than that. And so when you start thinking about, you know, particularly if, if we're talking about a, a manufacturing environment and, and specifically mechanics, part of the reason every mechanic I've ever met, part of the reason they do what they do is because they have this pride in craftsmanship. They like to, to have a job that they do well. They really dislike having to do patchwork that they know really isn't isn't up to standard. And so again, that that's part, of, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna give you a paycheck. Um, but what can we give you beyond that? It's so much more fun to come into work that that you enjoy, that has some purpose versus I'm just I'm just killing time till I retire. I don't think anyone would argue with that. <laughs> So I guess on that note, so we've all met, you know, the grumpy mechanic or the grumpy operator that just won't change. How do we get that person on our side? So those folks, I kind of put them into two categories, the, the hopeless 
and the disillusioned. And the good news is the majority of those people I find are in the, this disillusioned category. I uh, worked with a plant manager in Singapore many years ago, and he said, you know, Michelle, let's be honest. There is 2% of the working population that just has no business working anywhere. There's just nothing you can do that, that's going to make a difference with those guys. And I used to spend all my time trying to convince that 2% to get on board. And while I did that, I was ignoring the 98% that aren't aren't hopeless. Now, maybe some of those are disillusioned, but they're not hopeless. And so he said, you know, my new approach is I'm going to pay attention to the, the 98%. And so we started talking about, well, what would keep those 98% from, from kind of being on board? And we found that some of them were just unaware of what it was we were trying to do. Um, others knew what we were trying to do, but they felt like they didn't personally have a role in it. So, you know, they kind of wished us luck, but they didn't think it was something that they needed to be a part of. And then you had a group that were the skeptics. So these, to me, these are the disillusioned, grumpy people. Um, these are are folks that are waiting to see if you're actually going to follow through. And a lot of times these were people that at some point in their career were pretty enthusiastic and they got on board with a lot of other initiatives that had the big kickoff and then nothing happened after that. And so they said, you know, you fooled me before. You're not going to fool me again. I'm going to wait around and see if this goes away um, and, and not get my hopes up that this is going to be something that, that we're going to do. So I think part of what we can do to, to get the disillusioned folks on board, as well as the rest of the 98%, is that we can get better at articulating not just what we want to do, but why we want to do it. It's a lot easier to get on board when you understand the why. Um, making sure that we explain the importance of everybody's role. So it's not just something that the reliability group is doing or the maintenance department is doing, but it's something we're doing as an organization and everybody has a piece, a part to play. And then we got to walk the talk. We can't say, for instance, that we're really committed to plan maintenance and then turn around the next day and not provide enough time to adequately plan a job. Um, we've got to be willing to to walk the walk the talk. And I, I kind of feel like that is, you know, a majority of places that like don't succeed in reliability. It's not that they've never done any initiatives focused on reliability before. It's just they've never, you know, succeeded doing them. How do we like what's the process to overcome that? Like how long does it take for you know, are like that motivation to kind of build up to a sustainable, uh, like program. It starts with, with the launch of the program and, and how we launch it. And it could ramp up very quickly if we're, if we're doing it the right way. And so some of the, the keys to success are getting everyone involved early and often. And so a lot of times, you know, we, Hey, we're going to go do this in, in our, conference room for a year or two years. And when we're done, we're going to come let you know what it is. And that's, that's a pretty rough way to get people to, uh, to buy into a process. Uh, what, what I always say is that reliability is not a spectator sport. You got to get, get people involved, even if it's on a small scale early on in the process. And then, like we talked about before, closing the loop. So give people a chance to see the fruits of their labors. Don't have all of that work go into a black hole that people assume nothing ever happens to. And then get better at explaining the why so that people can, can contribute to the best of, of their abilities. If you're just telling them what to do, that makes it very, very limiting. 
uh, you know, you mentioned my my parents were the ones that started the manufacturing game. My dad worked at DuPont for 27 years, and, and his experiences there really led to a lot of the insights that he and, and a couple of other engineers put into the manufacturing game. But one of the things that that uh, impacted him that happened when he was was fairly young, fairly new in the organization. He had one of the very experienced mechanics come up to him, pretty frustrated with uh, with how my dad was trying to get him to change his his work. And he said, "You know, Winston, let me let me tell you. I don't know if you realize, but a free brain comes with every pair of hands that you guys hire around here, and you ought to consider using them." And that's something that stuck with my dad for years and years. He said, "You know, give people a chance to not just participate with their hands, but participate with their minds as well." I think, uh, you know, part of the problem is that reliability is pretty complex in terms of, of a lot of moving parts. And it's really important that we tap into everybody's knowledge and everybody's expertise if we're going to wrap our hands around it. And, you know, when you're trying to get a reliability initiative done, it, it's going to happen out in the field, not in a conference room or um, in a, a meeting room or at a conference somewhere like SMRP. It's going to happen out in the field. And so to make it sustainable, you've got to get all of those folks who on a daily basis are going to have to do things differently. You've got to get those guys on board. That's what makes it sustainable. Yeah, I love that. I, I really think the, uh, well, I mean, Jeff, I used to work for Jeff Smith and he used to always say, you know, is reliability, like the only way to affect reliability is to affect the person who physically interacts with the machine whether that's, you know, fixes it, operates it, lubricates it, whatever. Absolutely. The, the machine doesn't care what sort of certificates you have or, or what your intentions were. The machine cares about what you actually do, whether it's operating it or maintaining it or buying parts for it. Um, that's where the rubber meets the road is out in the field. Yeah, no doubt. Another thing I, I kind of see is is the longer I've been in reliability, the more that you realize that the guys on the shop floor really are the ones that have the best ideas. Like we like to, like we have the process for taking the idea and putting it, you know, into a, a box, but they're the ones that really have the idea. Absolutely. You know, they're the ones that are there every day and, and they have the practical knowledge of, uh, you know, I hear it, it said often with, with uh, talking to engineers, that's how you think it works. <laughs> Come on out and let me show you how it, actually works. And and when there's a, a disconnect there, um, that's when we have issues. So I have a few questions before we get you out of here. I guess one of them is like when we're, you know, when we're coming up with a project, like a reliability initiative or whatever, and we need like, let's, we need those guys on the shop floor to really be part of it. So like, let's say we're doing something like an RCM where we need their help. How do we get them on board to just even come to the conference room and to tell us everything that they know about whatever that piece of equipment is. So I, I think the first thing is, is what you said, um, specifically tell them, I need your help. I need your expertise. I can't do this without your input. That makes a big difference in tapping into that sense of purpose. So it's not just that you're being mandated to come participate in this. It's that I, this can't be done without you. I need your help. The second thing is make it easy for them to participate. If this is going to be really, really difficult and challenging and, and incredibly complicated, uh, you're going to lose, lose a lot of interest. 
And then I would say the last thing is get good at sharing those success stories. So again, closing that that loop where we get back and say, hey, because you participated in this, this is this is what happened. And um, you get a lot more buy-in. Again, if you're asking for folks to change the way that, that they behave, the way that they interact with the equipment, they're more likely to do it when the solution was at least in part their idea versus something that was was imposed upon them. But it, it's challenging to free those guys up. Um, you you got to make it simple for them. And so again, if it's say a, a, a root cause analysis or, or RCM work, if it can be done in smaller chunks where it's not, I'm going to take you away from the work for six months, uh, that's going to be something that's going to be easier for those frontline guys to participate in. Yeah, I guess that's another thing we haven't really talked about, but it's the the type of work is, you know, like it's not fun for them to sit in a room and break down failure modes for two weeks. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and so, you know, if we can, if we can break it down into to pieces, uh, that makes it a lot easier for them. You know, even if some of the work can be done up front and, and then, hey, we need you in here to see, you know, which of these are legit, which of these are ridiculous, um, that, can, that can help make it more interesting or, or at a minimum less, less boring. <laughs> it's always boring to sit in a conference room with me. That's all I know. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's true for all of us. You know, you uh, get in there, put the PowerPoint up and dim the lights and, and everybody's asleep pretty quickly. <laughs> so Michelle, I guess like you've been in the game a long time. And so what are some mistakes that you see when that people make when they're trying to engage their people? Probably what I've seen as the biggest mistake in, in a variety of forms is letting the pursuit of perfection get in the way of progress. And I think particularly in engineering heavy industries, which is most of, of what I work with, there is that that sense of we've got to come up with the answer and then we're going to put the answer out to other people. We don't want them to, to see our, our, um, our work. You know, we want to wait until we get it exactly right. The problem is it's incredibly difficult to get something exactly right on the first shot. If it's something that's, that's new, you got to get out there and field test it and make adjustments to it. And so, you know, what I recommend to the folks that I work with is come up with something that you think is in the right direction. You know, it's not perfect, but at least it's, it's headed in the right way. And then come up with a way to test it in a small, low-risk environment. But make sure you involve a diverse group. So don't just go do it with your reliability engineers. Get some, some folks involved that are going to be impacted by this change you're making, specifically shop floor folks, people that, that are closest to the equipment. And let them work with you on this small, low-risk trial understand that it's not going to be perfect and but your process is going to be to learn from that to improve and then to try it again and so if you work your way towards perfection as a team you're going to get two benefits one is you're going to get better answers because you get the diverse perspective um, of the the folks that are around the equipment more frequently but you're also going to get more buy-in because now you've got people who are part of, of developing the solution. They're going to be a lot more bought into it than when you just hand them something that you think is perfect. And they're going to now tell you all the ways that it won't work. And I guess, I guess that's something. And so like a lot of us, you know, engineers were conditioned through, you know, years of education that 
you have to come out with the right solution right off the bat. Now, if we, you know, get that 80% solution and we work to the 100% with that group, we don't lose credibility with them, do we? In fact, the opposite, right? The fact that that you're willing to say, hey, this this is what I can do. This is where my area of expertise is, but I don't have the whole picture. I need your input to make sure that I completely understand, not just from an engineering perspective, how this equipment is supposed to work, but how we actually operate it, how we actually maintain it, um, the parts that we actually have available to us. Let's make sure that, that we're looking at the whole picture. That is one of the best ways to gain the respect of of the folks that are out in the field. In fact, we ran a workshop several years ago for, it was just uh, young engineers. They were in their second or third year at this company. And one of the, the people asked, how do I get the frontline folks to, to help me out with these, you know, to, to do these projects that I need to get done? And before I could answer, one of the other guys in the room said, you don't. You go out there and you get some of their projects done. Once you get their projects done, you can't stop them. They will help you with absolutely everything that, that you need help with because you listened to them and you took their input into account. So I think it's kind of the, the opposite of what we think. We think we're going to go out there and, and uh, embarrass ourselves because we don't have the perfect answer. But in fact, we get a lot more people on the team when we, when we ask for their help and, um, and we, we implement it together. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. One of the examples... Um, I've seen with just that solution there was we were implementing a telemetry project at tech in like 2012. And, um, the, one of the engineers, he, he took his laptop to the, uh, to the maintenance shop. And like, you could tell based on the data, like what was wrong with the equipment. And he, he just sat there for six months to a year, you know, with the, just with the maintenance guys, you know, listening to them, kind of helping them. And then eventually they started just coming to him every time. Hey, what's wrong with this piece of equipment? It's coming in on PM. We want to know what, like what the data tells us. Yeah, that that's perfect. And you know, what that taps into is, is the natural human instinct where we want to learn. You know, if you think about a, a child, I have a, a six-year-old grandchild, and her favorite question is, why? <laughs> why? Why do things work? So we have this natural curiosity, this natural desire to learn about the world around us. And, uh, you know, we, we kind of, through our education system, we assume at some point that, that that disappears and that learning has to be just really horrible and miserable and painful. And, and it shouldn't be. And that, that's true with children, but that's also true with adults. We still love to learn. We want to understand why things work the way that they work. And so when you can tap into that, that's incredibly strong. That's that internal motivation again. Perfect. And so I guess my last question for you, Michelle, is do you have any more tips, like some big overarching tips that, that our listeners can take away when they're implementing a project? Yeah. So kind of overall, some of the, the things I think I've, I've already said, but let me just reiterate them. Engage everyone early and often. Make sure you're, you're closing the loop. So give people a chance to see that, that what they do actually matters. Make sure you're explaining why. Um, 
get, especially for the engineers, get a lot better at sharing successes in a way that's meaningful. Uh, so what we traditionally do is we break out Excel and we come up with the, uh, the graphs and the charts and the, the spreadsheets with all of the numbers in it. Um, but we don't tell the story. We're pretty lousy at, at being storytellers. And that's what people remember is the story behind it, not necessarily the, the exact numbers. In fact, you hear people tell those stories all the time where they say, I'm not going to remember the numbers, but here's what happened. And it was some big number, whatever it was. So get good at, at telling the stories and making them interesting so that you can involve more people. We can tap into the things that are, are fun about the work that we do, the things that make a difference to our internal customers as well as, as our external customers, and the things that can help us move on to sort of bigger and bigger and better things. It's, it's getting into an area that for a lot of engineers is pretty uncomfortable. It's kind of that squishy area, uh, but it's, you know, until the robot armies take over, it's people out there touching the equipment and, and doing things the right way, the wrong way, or somewhere in between. And so we've got to work with those people if we really want to make a change out at our sites. Awesome. I love that. And so Michelle, uh, do you have any plugs? Are you going to be at any more conferences this year? We are done with conferences for the year, um, so we'll we'll be getting back into them in, in 2019, but we're done for this year. And if uh, anyone's looking to learn more about the manufacturing game, where can they find it and find you? So we have a website, manufacturinggame.com. Uh, there's a lot of information on there. We also wrote a book. Uh, it's available on Amazon. It's called Don't Just Fix It, Improve It. And with this book, we've taken our own advice. So instead of being really boring with lots of charts and numbers, it is in story form. So it's a very easy read. It's easy to digest and to remember, a lot less boring than your traditional maintenance text can be. So I highly recommend the book. And uh, I'm on LinkedIn, so happy to engage people in conversations there as well. Perfect. And yeah, so Michelle, you'll be tagged in all the all the posts. And then also if you're listening, not on uh, not through LinkedIn, check the podcast notes and follow Michelle there. Um, everybody else, you know, thanks for listening. Michelle, thanks for joining us and thank you for sharing your expertise. Thanks, Rob. I really appreciate the chance to have the conversation. Perfect. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the next time you, you come out with another great talk, we'll definitely have you back on. Fantastic. I'd love it.